The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. What a wonderful passage we get to look at and unpack today as we prepare to celebrate so many good things that God has given to us and done for us. Let's pray again and ask for the Lord's help just as we come to his word that we could each hear it from the heart. Our Father, we thank you that you speak, you're still speaking, and we have here sitting here today in the midst of all our normalness, frailty, failure, uh, we have the ultimate word, the final word, the best word, the word from your scriptures about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. And so we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and shine the light on Christ again for us in a new way, in a fresh way, that you would awaken us, our hearts, our minds, our eyes, Lord, to see him, to treasure him, to hang on to him in the midst of suffering, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of difficulty, that our joy and our hope would be in Christ. And that would enable us to be faithful to him until the end, no matter the cost. We pray that you work this in us even now, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have entered the Christmas season. It never feels like it for me until this room is decorated. It was decorated very well. Again, thank you to the volunteers that did that. Uh, Christians, especially, should enjoy the Christmas season. The season we call Advent, the coming of the, the long-awaited one. We enjoy the season because we're celebrating, aren't we, the birth of Jesus Christ. We're celebrating the, the reality that he was born. Now I'll let you in on it. An ugly little secret, we don't actually know what day he was born on, right? Did you know that? I suppose we have a one in 365 chance or something that it was December 25th, but we, we don't know. Who cares? We do know that he was born. He was born. He was born for us. So I'll ask, any, any of you have a birthday in December? A couple of you do. Happy birthday. We love you, and we are happy to celebrate your birth. But how many of you speak of your birth like this? I have come. Okay? I have come. Well, that, that would be very strange. And because that would seem to infer that you were before your birth. So, no, don't talk like that. But you realize that's exactly how Jesus talked. I have come. Here's one example, John 6.38. Look at John 6.38. Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So imagine what people must have thought as they heard that. Jesus, are you saying you were before you were born? What do you think, folks? That's exactly what he was saying. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they heard this loud and clear. Number one, he's saying he, he was before this man who lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before him. Moreover, he said, I am. And for a Jewish listener, he just claimed to be one with God. So when we're talking about Christmas, it's not, it's not just a birthday we're thinking about. We're thinking you know, these three words, he has come. So you think he, 
He has come, who the eternal Son of God has come here. And he came in utter, ultimate humility. What a breathtaking claim, right? The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, is the eternal Son of God. He's come, and that that changes everything. It just changes everything. So we're asking, in part, uh, during Christmas, well, why did he come? Why? Why was he born? Some say, well, Jesus was a political revolutionary. It's popular in today's world. And you realize it was popular in Jesus' day. That's what many of the Jews of Jesus' day hoped for, that he would be a political revolutionary. They wanted him to head to the headquarters of the invading Roman army and shut them down. That's not what he did, is it? Where did he go? He went to the temple and he shut that down. That act would lead to his crucifixion. And before he went to the cross at that last supper with his disciples, Jesus said this, Luke twenty two twenty. He said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. He was born so that he could live here among us. He was born in a body so that he could bleed. And he was born so that he could bleed so that you and I could have the new covenant. That's why he came. That is why he came. And if we understand this, the more we understand this, just understand there is no better gift. There is no greater present. There is no higher joy. There is no more lovely treasure than to have the new covenant. And that's why Jesus came. So we're going to be looking at this theme from Hebrews this Christmas. Uh, The author of Hebrews spends a lot of time on how Jesus brings the new covenant. That's what we're starting on today. We remember that This book was written to a group of marginalized Jewish Christians who were influenced to leave their loyalty and allegiance to Jesus for other hopes. They were suffering. It's just a reminder for all of us, when you suffer, you're going to be tempted to want to place your heart somewhere where you can find hope and treasure and meaning. And you're going to be influenced to move away from Jesus. And so the writer here, he pleads, don't do it, he says. Stay with Jesus. Hold fast your confession, no matter what. And in part, he argues uh, using legitimate common ground with them. They are religious Jews. And so he argues using the law they love, he shows them that the law itself says something greater than the law is coming. That, that That their own scriptures show them a greater priest is coming, that their own scriptures say a new covenant is coming. And he says, Jesus is the one who's brought this covenant. So that's what I want to ponder this morning. Uh, I hope we'll see four things in our time and God's word together. Number one, just a little bit about the importance of covenant. Why is this so important? What's important about it? Number two, how Jesus obtained this covenant. That's really what our author is saying today. Jesus obtained the covenant. Number three, some of the benefits, the gifts of belonging to this new covenant. And number four, just a little bit about what it means to live in this covenant together. And that'll take us to what we're celebrating after the sermon, baptism, profession, new member, Lord's Supper. Okay, so four things, importance of the covenant, Jesus obtained the covenant, benefits of the new covenant, participation together in the new covenant. Here we go. Number one, the importance of covenant. 
What does the word covenant mean? Um, I wonder sometimes if that idea is almost lost in our cultural moment. I've heard some Christian leaders lately even say, they'll say, um, Christianity is a relationship, not a bunch of rules. How do you feel about that? To be honest, I, I see the point. Yeah, it's not only rules, for sure. But on the other hand, um, do any of you have a serious relationship of commitment with no rules? Try that on, okay? Uh, I doubt that very much. In fact, if there's no rules in your relationship, I don't think it's a very serious relationship, and it won't be a serious relationship for very long. And it takes you into this idea of covenant then. God is seriously committed to a serious relationship with his people, And he always relates to them through covenant. God never relates to people aside from covenant. And a covenant is a relationship bound and held by promises. He promises, this is who I will be to you. And this is who you will be to me. I will be and do this. You will be and do that. And each party in this covenant, they swear themselves to that. They make oaths to join in that. It's a serious relationship bound and held by promises, stipulations. So, of course, when God brings his people, Israel, out of slavery from Egypt, he takes them to Mount Sinai, and what does he do? He makes a covenant with them. This is who I am. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. This is who I will be to you. This is who you will be to me. And if you could sum up that Mosaic law, it might be something like this. I will be your God, and you will be my people if you keep my law. I'll be your God, you'll be my people, if you keep my law. Or look at Leviticus 18.5, maybe a decent summary. Leviticus 18.5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. I'll be your God, you'll be my people, if you keep my law. You'll live if you keep my statutes and my rules. How do you feel about that? You know, biblical history and the author of this passage shows you that that Mosaic covenant did not work. It didn't work. Uh, One way you know it didn't work, and the author says it here, chapter 8, verse 7, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. So, I mean, what he's saying here is he's working from what they already know. They know the prophet Jeremiah said there's going to be a new covenant, and so the author of Hebrews just using his logical, biblical mind. Same thing he did with the Melchizedekian priest, right? There's gonna be a new priesthood. How do we know? Well, Psalm 110, there's, there's a new priest. That means there's something wrong with the old priesthood. There's gonna be a better priest. He does the same thing here. Why do we need a new covenant? Do you think it was because God was saying, hey, this Mosaic covenant is just perfect. I'll make a new one just for fun. No. No, it, the, the, the old covenant, that Mosaic covenant itself had in it that it would not work. And, and the scriptures have in it, this is not working. That's why we need a new one. We need a better one. A better covenant is coming. Okay, but why, why didn't it work? Look at Hebrews 8, verse 8. The author says, God finds fault with them when he says. Who's the them? That's the people involved in the Mosaic covenant. God finds fault with them when he says, and we see right there, this this is why it didn't work. The old covenant failed because the human heart is stubborn and rebellious, and we don't love God and we don't want to keep his laws. That's why it didn't work. 
I mean, the, the law is good. It's from God. It's, it's righteous. Uh, it shows you how to love God. It shows you how to love your neighbor. The problem is not with God's law. Jeremiah 17, this is the same prophet who said a new covenant's coming. Look at what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Do you believe that about your heart? You know, you live in a culture that just tells you, follow your heart. Do as you feel. And we kind of want to doctor ourselves up, right? How many of you would say, you know, that kind of old, I guess it works, the old evangelistic question. If you're, if you're going to die tonight, would you be welcome into the presence of God in heaven? Yes or no? What would you say? Okay, you answer that. Why? Why? Far too many people, even people who go to Christian churches, far too many people would say something like, I would go to heaven because I've been a good person. Because I went to church, because I kept the law, because I was nice, because I remember once when I forgave somebody, because I remember once when I gave some charity, because I remember once when I did something that was sort of decent or more decent than most people around me, that would be enough to get me in. This is one reason the Bible is so difficult for people. Your heart actually, down at the core of who you are, left to yourself, You are a liar to yourself, about yourself, about God, and about his law. Because the more honest we would get, the more we look at what God's law actually says, the more I see about myself is that I'm a sinner, and it's not an accident. It's a desire problem. I don't love God and his ways. I love my pride, myself, and I can come up with great reasons for why I should replace God and disobey him. Is anybody else in that boat with me? My heart is deceitful, left to myself, and desperately wicked. And that's the problem with this Mosaic covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people if you keep the law. It sounds great, except they won't keep the law because they don't love God, they don't love his ways. And it's such a problem. Look at how verse 9 of chapter 8 talks about it. There God says, for they did not continue in my covenant, and, show I, and so I showed no concern for them. Not my people, a different prophet will say. Under judgment, it's very sober, isn't it? So we ask, so, so God relates to his people in covenant? This, what the author's calling the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, I will be your God, you will be my, be my people if you keep my law? It's not working. It doesn't work. So what do we do? What what is our hope of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of fellowship with our creator? How can we be right with God? How can we live in the design that he has given us? How can we know him and his salvation? Well, there's going to be a new covenant. A new covenant is coming, and Jesus came to obtain it. That takes us to our second point. Jesus obtained the new covenant. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. The point we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. And if you've been here the last several weeks, we're going through Hebrews, and we've just seen again and again ways Jesus is just excellent, beautiful, supreme, better, better, better. Awesome, wonderful. The point, he wants to sum it up. We have this priest. We've seen we need a priest, right? We can't come to God on our own. He's too holy. We are too rebellious. God has sent the mediator, the one who bridges the gap. 
He is the tie from a holy, perfect God to a weak humanity, for Jesus is both. He could take his hands and bring the two together. He's the guarantee. Look at what Hebrews 7.22 said. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus guarantees it. He, he paid the price. He owned it. He purchased it. So here, right here, we have that priest. That's what the author's saying. And now he wants to look at one more way Jesus is better. And he starts to talk about where Jesus is doing his work. Uh, look again, 8.1. Now the point we're saying is this. We have such a great high priest. Now look at this. One who's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not men. So you see this emphasis on where Jesus is doing his priestly work? It's a different way of thinking, isn't it? I guess the, I guess the power of a priesthood is kind of like property value. What do they say? Location, location, location. Where is your priest doing his work? That's an important question to the author here. And we see where our Lord is doing his work. We have such a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Where's he doing his work right now? In the very presence of God. Seated at the right hand. That is the most powerful, influential, glorious, sovereign place there could be in the reality of the universe. That's where Jesus is. And he is seated. What, what does that idea of seated give you? He's not on his knees, begging a hesitant, angry father to finally be nice to these people. It's not it at all. He's seated. He, the Father, the Spirit, the Trinity, perfectly unified in agreement that the work of Christ was everything God's people need for salvation, for redemption. And he's interceding. We saw that in our text last week. Look again, Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, Jesus is able to save, what's that next phrase? To the uttermost. So does Jesus sort of save some people who don't quite look as good as everybody else? Is that how this works? Those who are saved are those who draw near to him, period. All who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you draw near to him in faith, that's who he saves. And if he saves you, he will save you to the what? The uttermost. There's, there's no levels here. You all get all of him by grace alone, through faith alone. And he's interceding for you now. What does that mean? It's all the effect of his person and his work personally active for you who believe now. Do you think he has your name on his mind? Does Jesus just save kind of a vague group of people, sort of? Because, you know, when I, when I say that to you, do you think he has your name on his mind? Part of what my heart says is, I'm not notable enough for Jesus to have my name on his mind. Anybody else feel that way? It's just, there's too many of us, number one, Right? I can't even remember everybody's name in here right now. It's too many of us, plus, plus we're, not, we're not good enough. Maybe he thinks of that person, but not me. Well, why do you think that about him? You realize those thoughts, you're limiting his power? It's not hard for him to remember every one of your names. You're also limiting his goodness. 
When he says, I've saved you from your sins, he could tell you every sin that he bled for on the tree. He knows your sins more intimately than you do. (laughs) He's paid for them. And he intercedes for you by name. If he can't intercede for you by name, why can he intercede for anyone by name? Because it's all by grace alone. And if he intercedes for anybody by name, any sinner saved, why can't he intercede for you by name? And he does. He's seated. He's doing his work, the author says, in the true tent. So what do you think of that language? He does his work in the true tent. So the audience of this letter, right, they would have grown up with their entire lives centered on worshiping in the tent. So obviously this is not a tent you get from REI to go backpacking. Okay? It's not that kind of a tent. This is the tabernacle. This is a lavish, lavish, ornate tent, strong, well put together, intentional, beautiful. And this tabernacle becomes the temple. This is the place you go where God's presence is located, where the priests are offering their sacrifices. And so the author says, our priest, you know, these priests are over there in the temple right now. Our priest, he's in the real tent. What? What? What does that mean? The real, the real tabernacle, the real tent. Well, let's, let's see what the author's saying. Look at verse 3, chapter 8, verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Well, we've seen already what Jesus had to offer. What did Jesus offer as his sacrifice? Do you know? He offered himself. Hebrews 7, 27. Jesus has no need, like all those Levitical high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, he has no need to do this since he did this once for all when he offered himself. The offering of himself was the greatest, most perfect, most beautiful, most holy offering, and it was so perfect as to be once for all, finished, complete, done. That was his offering. Where did he offer himself? Was it at the temple? It wasn't in the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, he was an outcast, right? Out on the hill outside, outside the city somewhere. That, that's where he offered himself. And so look, 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 what he, look what the author here says in chapter 8, verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Who are those people and where are they doing their work? According to the Mosaic law, they're Levitical priests, and they're doing their work in the temple in Jerusalem. That's what the law says. What, what did those priests do to deserve their role as priests? Nothing. They were born in the tribe of Levi. It was by birth, wasn't it? It's by genealogy. And now the author, he begins to assume something. Hey, Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi. He's not a priest in that tent or that temple. He wasn't born into that line by blood. In fact, he's a better priest in a better tent because he obtained his priesthood with his blood. And so the shadow is going to be replaced by the real. It was always going to be that way. Look at 8 verse 5. This would have been, I think, shocking to the, his audience. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Who, who's they in verse 5? Chapter 8 verse 5. Who are they? Levitical priests. They serve a copy and a shadow. What's the copy and the shadow? 
the tabernacle, which became the temple. It's a copy and a shadow. So think of the word shadow. Don't you have a continuity and a discontinuity? Shadow. If I saw your shadow, it's too cloudy today. We're in Southern California. Wait a couple days. You'll see your shadow. It will in some way look like your form, won't it? There's a continuity. And yet if somebody, all that, if somebody, all they had of you was a picture of your shadow, have they seen the real you? Are you kidding? Not even, not even close. Not even close. Do you hear what the author is saying here? The tabernacle, even though it came in the Mosaic Covenant, it, was, it, it, was, it came in the temple, the tabernacle is just a shadow of the real thing. Where's the real tent? The real place we worship? It's the very presence of God. It's the very presence of God. And that's where Jesus is doing his work. And, you know, Jewish readers should have seen this. Exodus 25, God tells Moses to make the tabernacle according to the pattern. And what does the, the pattern idea infer? This is just a copy, which means there's a real thing. There's a real thing. Don't you want to go to the real thing? Don't you want your priest in the real place? This is better. So you see what the author says in chapter 8, verse 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry, and I really love this next phrase, that is as much more excellent. Much more excellent. It's not just more excellent, folks. It's much more excellent. What's he trying to communicate? Oh, how much better is the covenant that Jesus brought than the Mosaic covenant? Oh, how much better. There's continuity. In the Mosaic covenant, we learn about God's holiness. We learn about our need for a priest. We learn about the need for sacrifices. We learn about the desire to worship. But, but that's just a shadow. The real thing is now we see, now we see it all come true in Jesus Christ and what he's done. And so he says, he, he builds us all up. Hey, new tent, it's not about the temple anymore. It's about the presence of God. New priest, it's not about the Levites any, anymore. It's about Jesus Christ. New sacrifice, it's not about cows. It's about the body of our perfect Savior sacrifice for us. Jesus has now obtained a new covenant. Look at verse 6 again. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent as the old covenant than the old covenant. As the covenant, he mediates is better. Why is it better? It's enacted on better promises. It's enacted on better promises. So if it's true, right? If it's true, the old covenant said, I'll be your God, you'll be my people if you keep my law. And those of us who are honest are saying, I wanted you to be my God. I haven't kept your law. What now? In Jesus, there are better promises coming. There are better promises that are here, and he has obtained it. He has obtained it. Remember again what he said? I told you at the beginning. What did Jesus say that last supper with his disciples? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus bought the best of God's promises for you 
as he died on the cross for you in your place. This word obtained, if you care about grammar, perfect, active, indicative. Greek cares about grammar. And you're like, you're nerding out on me, Matt, what's going on? Perfect, active, indicative. Well, let me just say, it's, this word to obtain means to hit the mark, to reach, to obtain, to get, to become master of. And with the tense of the grammar, it means Jesus has done it perfectly, completely. It can't be taken away or changed. It's faultless. It's sure. He owns it. It's his. He's done it. I think the way Jesus would say it is, it is finished. Jesus came to obtain this for you. He was born humbly to obtain this for you. He went to the cross to obtain this for you. And his perfect life, his holy innocence, his faithfulness through suffering, his love, his sympathy, his death on a cross in our place, his resurrection, his seating at the right hand of God. He is the ultimate priest in the ultimate place, and he did it to obtain the new covenant. Now let's see some of the blessings of the new covenant. You see this in 10 to 12. I'm just going to point out two major things to you. The blessings of the new covenant. Before we get there, just a reminder. What have we seen so far? The importance of covenant. How does God relate to people? He always relates through covenant. So I'm raising the question now before we think of the new covenant. Do you have a relationship with God? And how do you know? A lot of people in our day assume that a relationship with God is just casual and undefined. I don't really know who he is, and he kind of just wants me to be sort of a nice person. And if I kind of sort of try to do that and think about him every once in a while, we're good. If the biblical God is the real God, if Jesus really came and he's the eternal son of God, and if God has really spoken through his prophets, the way I just described is not actually a relationship with God. You don't actually know him. And in fact, you're still under God's covenant because God made you. So he has rights to you. And he calls you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And right now, I'm, I'm telling you, I'll just say it from my own perspective about myself. If I was left to myself under that covenant, all I have working for me is judgment because I haven't done that. I even know I should, but I haven't done that. And so the question now, how, how can you know you have a real relationship with the real God? Well, he, he's offering all of us the opportunity to be in covenant with him. He is saying, I will be your God, and you can be my people. And it's not just if you keep my law, because he knows that doesn't work. In fact, all of that was set up to show you that it can't work. You can't save yourself. You're not good enough. And the beauty here of the new covenant is you don't have to save yourself. There's someone else who has done it. Jesus has earned for me and for you undeserving rebellious sinners. He has earned for us a true and real and living way to a relationship with God. So this is the invitation for all of us. If we will trust Christ, if we have Christ, look at the nature of the covenant we're in. Now we're in Hebrews 8. Look at verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds, write, it, write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I'll remember their iniqu- I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I'll remember their sins no more. 
two major things I want to show you about the new covenant here. Number one, it is founded on and fulfilled by grace. By grace. What's grace? Lavish, undeserved love. And a key word there is undeserved. Love you get, you receive that you don't deserve. So you think of the promise of a, of a Mosaic covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people if you keep my laws. And we look up and say, I haven't kept his laws. I don't deserve to be in fellowship with God. But now we see in this beginning of the new covenant, did you see? This is the covenant that I will make, God says. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will all know me. I will be merciful. Do you see who's doing all the work here? God is doing the work of the covenant. God is doing the work of the covenant. And so because he has worked, you can rest. It is by grace. Remember, these are better promises. So when you're old, Christmas isn't quite as exciting as it used to be because you have to buy yourself your own presents, right? When you're young, presents. Okay, so kids, which promise do you like better? If you're still like, ooh, Christmas, which promise do you like better? Um, hey, uh, I'll, get you a great Chris- I'll get you a great present this Christmas if you're good, if you're always good. And then the, the savvy kid will be like, well, what kind of level of good are you using here, right? Like generally better than really bad kids kind of good? Or are you talking like spiritual, like good, good? I'll get you a present if you're good. What about this? I'll get you a great present because I love you. What if, what if I wasn't good? I'm still getting you a present. I'm giving you a great present because I love you. That's the flavor of the new covenant. It's by grace. It's according to somebody else's work. Remember Leviticus? Do this and you will live. That's the old covenant. The new covenant says, Jesus did this so that you can live. Jesus did this so that you can live. Let me prove it to you. Romans 3.20. By works of the law. No human will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. You want to start bringing in standards, okay? The law, God's standard for good and evil, right and wrong. Through the law, through works of the law, Paul says, Romans 3.20, no human being will be made right with God because if you're really honest about the law, all it's going to show you is you don't keep it. So I'll give you a present if you're good. No, I'm not good. Romans 4, 4, listen to this. Romans 4, 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But we've already seen, I don't want my due. Do you want what you deserve based on your works? I don't. Look at Romans 4, verse 5. And to the one who, what are the next three words? Does not work. This person is not putting their hope for being right with God in the good things they have done. They have despaired of that as not being enough. To the one who does not work, but instead, instead of doing works of the law, instead what? Believes in him, and what does he do? In him who, this is a scandal, this is a scandal. He justifies who? 
the ungodly. You should be perturbed. Uh, say, say, say you're in a court case and somebody has sinned grievously against you and your family, committed horrible, horrible sins, and say you're sitting there and you're waiting for the verdict and the, and the judge said of that criminal, innocent, just going to let him go. How would you feel? Outrage, this is injustice. No. You realize you are God in the new covenant is grabbing ungodly people and calling them righteous. People had nothing on their resume to make them right with him. And we're, we're frowning. Wait, what? How does this work? Don't, don't you see how it works? Number one, if God's not going to save the unrighteous, who is he going to save? Well, he needs to save the good people. Jesus will be the only one there. The only people to save are the ungodly. And now you're thinking about, well, how can I, the ungodly, be counted as righteous? Well, this goes back to the priest. This is what he did. He came to be like us, with us, for us. And he lived as our representative. He lived the perfect life so that the perfection of his life could count to you. That God would count you righteous. And you think, that's, that's not true. You're lying. It's true if he's looking at someone else's righteousness on your behalf. He's looking at Jesus' righteousness and saying that Jesus' righteousness is yours as a gift through faith in him. God unites us to Christ through faith in him. Christ takes our sin and pays for it on the cross, and we receive his righteousness. Our faith is counted as righteousness. God does the work. It's a covenant of grace, and this is what is given in the new covenant. Do you like the idea that you are counted righteous before God with the righteousness of someone else and not your own? Do you like that? It's a gift of grace to you, and Jesus obtained it. That's the first picture of this new covenant. It's by grace because Christ has done the work. Moreover, is the kind of grace that transforms you from the heart. So I want you to see a combination of these three factors in what Jeremiah said. There's three factors in the new covenant that transforms you from the heart. Number one, did you see what the Lord said? They will know me. I will be my God, and they will be my people, and they, they won't teach one another each, um, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the greatest to the least. Now, is he saying that Christians don't need to be taught? What's he doing right now in this letter? I'm teaching Christians, okay? Of course we need to be taught. We, that's part of discipleship. We're always being taught. But one thing I don't have to teach any real Christian about is having a genuine and honest and actual relationship with the living God as your father. You know him. In fact, you have every right and every access to know him. If you put your faith in Christ, you have every right and every access to deeply and truly know the living God of the universe. You have every right as I do or anybody you might look up to and say, oh, that's a special Christian. No. Did you see? We will all know him from the least to the greatest. There's no levels. There's no boundaries. Remember when, the, when Jesus died on the cross, the, the 
curtain of the temple was torn in two. And it's this full-on, come into the throne of grace. You all get to know the Lord through the new covenant. An, a genuine, actual, intimate relationship with the God of the universe. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. What's the Bible's favorite, favorite illustration for the covenant we have with God? What is it? It's marriage. Jesus is the husband. The church is the bride. That's the picture of this relationship. It's closeness. Another illustration, father to child. You, if you have Christ, if you trust Christ, you know the Lord. And think of the word my. I will be their God. They will be my people. Think of the Psalms. Lord, you are my Lord and my God. Can your heart say that of God? Of God? You're my God. Not that you own him or anything ridiculous like that, but that you have a real covenant relationship with him. He's covenanted himself to you. You will know the Lord. Second, you will taste of his complete mercy. Look at this, verse 12, 8, 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Mercy is compassionate care for someone in need and then meeting that need. And God sees us in the new covenant, and even in our sins, he has mercy towards us. His heart aches for us in our need and our brokenness. In the new covenant, his heart is not towards, oh, you didn't do it good enough, I'm done with you. That is not the new covenant. The new covenant is, oh, you're broken and struggling, I love you and I'm with you, come back to me. Come back to me, I'll be merciful towards their tradition their transgressions. I'll remember their sins no more. Now, so I've heard people say, well, God just totally forgets your sins as if God, like, is getting old, has dementia. Oh, sin? Uh, that's not the way the Bible uses the word remember. Why did the flood end? Read the story in Genesis. God remembered Noah. It's not like his iPhone was like, Noah, oh, I left the pipes on too long. No, come on, no. It's treating you according to his promises. When, when God remembers someone, God is being faithful to his promises. And he has promised you that if you're in Christ, he has wiped away all of your sins. And he will never treat you in a punitive judgment kind of a way. He will never treat you according to your sins. He will discipline you for sure. For sure. He'll refine you for sure. But it's never punitive wrath. Never. Some of you are thinking, I have not heard this in the church I grew up in. This is the gospel. This is the new covenant. This is what Jesus brought. Complete forgiveness. And that adds up to, you know the Lord, you taste of his mercy. Look, he will write his law on your heart. And this is the part we sometimes forget. Now it is true that in Christ, the law is no longer this external standard judging us, right? We're saved from that. Jesus fulfilled it for me. He lived the perfect life for me in my place. He paid the penalty for me on the tree. The law no longer stands there as my judge any longer. I'm dead to that mess. I'm married to Christ. And when you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And remember what our main problem was in that first covenant? It's our hearts. Where's God going to write his law? On your heart. 
What does that mean? That means in what you love and how you live, you start to legitimately, genuinely love God and love his ways as described in his word. You love God. Part of it is gratefulness and thanksgiving for what he's done for you. Part of, just, part of it is just seeing true beauty for what it is. You've seen holiness and righteousness, and you've been made righteous by Christ, and it starts to transform you. If you want a picture of that, I encourage you to read Galatians 5 this afternoon and see what's going on in the Christian. Yeah, you got desires of the flesh, right? There's still a war in you every day. Yeah, me too. You still got desires of the flesh, but you have desires of the Spirit as well. And, and those who are in Christ, we've crucified the flesh. We, we want to be done with that. And we want to live for God by the Holy Spirit, filled with the fruit of Christ. Which is why I say, in the new covenant, it's by grace, and it will transform you from the heart, because you know God, you know his mercy, and you love him and his ways. That's the heartbeat of the new covenant. And Jesus came to obtain that for you. He came to obtain that for you. Do you have it? Have you trusted him for it? Are you in it? What should you do? What should you do? Well, it's a long answer. You know, the author of Hebrews is going to apply this in uh, chapter 10, okay? We're in chapter 8. So we're going to leave some of that for later. But I want to use a phrase the author of Hebrews uses. What should we do now that Jesus has obtained the new covenant? You should get in it and you should hold fast to it. Okay, get in it and hold fast to it. Number one, how do you get in it? Trust Jesus and not your own works. Let me show you just the the last part of chapter eight. The author says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. That's so curious to think about because, you know, most likely this letter was written in 60 AD or so, maybe later, What's going on in 60 AD in Jerusalem right now for the experience of this audience right now? The temple activity is occurring right now. And you can see why it would be tempting for them to go back to the Mosaic Law. The the temple's still there. The Levitical priests are still there. I can participate in my community. I'll just kind of leave Jesus over here, and I can read the Bible again, and I can worship again. I'll just leave it all for Jesus. But the author sees something coming, doesn't he? Politically, you would have been able to see it. Israel was moving toward rebellion. Rome was moving towards crushing that rebellion. The author of Hebrews would have known what Jesus said. You remember what Jesus said? One day he said, every stone of the temple will be ripped apart. The thing is coming down. And as this author writes in 8.13, what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. Whoa, it almost raises the hair on the back of your neck to realize that what, seven years, five years, three years? By AD 70, the Roman army came and the temple was no more. Talk about obsolete, growing old, and vanishing away. And to this day, even if you wanted to worship God according to the Mosaic law, you cannot, for there is no priesthood, There is no temple. It's over. Don't you think God ordained it that way? (laughs) To show that the way to come to him 
is through the new covenant, Jesus Christ. So what I want to do with that is say our thoughts of being right with God according to our works and goodness should go the way of that first century temple. Burn it down. Come to Christ not according to your goodness, but through faith in Christ alone. And enjoy the new covenant and then hold fast. I'll show you Hebrews 10, 23. We won't stay here long. But just at least see a highlight of how the author says we should respond. Hold fast. Hold fast. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, the day of Jesus' return, drawing near. Hold fast to the new covenant you have in Christ and do it. Who are you supposed to do it with? Your local church. You live out the new covenant primarily in community with your local church, knowing, encouraging, helping listening, serving, meeting with one another. And that takes us to what we're celebrating now. We're gonna celebrate all these new covenant things. We're gonna celebrate the sign of the new covenant as we baptize Ryzen. We're gonna celebrate evidence of the new covenant as we hear from my son Judah and his faith in Jesus Christ. We're gonna recognize a fellow participate in the new covenant as we welcome a new member. And we're gonna celebrate the meal of the new covenant together as we take the Lord's Supper. Because that's what Jesus came to obtain for us. And legitimately, there's nothing better. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, O Lord, for the new covenant. Thank you that you save us by grace, not according to our works. Thank you that your heart is full of love for us in Christ. We have a perfect priest who brings us to you. Thank you that all our sins are forgiven. And Lord, we pray that you would write your law on our hearts, that we would love knowing you, that we would love living for you. And bless us, Lord, as one small example of a new covenant community. Help us hold fast to our confession in Christ and live out this faith in him genuinely with one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.